The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, December the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we start, another reminder that we will be doing our special Ask Us Anything podcast over the Christmas. You can mail your questions, whatever they may be, to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And those can be directed either to myself and the political team as a whole or to anyone individually. And we do particularly welcome questions sent in audio form as we'd like to know what our listeners sound like. But Christmas is not yet here, whatever the TV ads may tell you. And with just over a week to go to the UK general election, we thought we should talk to two of our journalists who have been making regular expeditions or safaris to the neighbouring island in recent years to report on what's happening on the ground as the Brexit drama unfolds. Patrick Frayne and Jennifer O'Connell, you're both very welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Jennifer, you were in uh, Dudley last week, and Dudley is probably most famous these days as the home of Peaky Blinders. Yeah, a lot of Peaky Blinders is is filmed there. Um, It's a really interesting part of the West Midlands. It was extremely wealthy in its in its time. It was a centre of uh, steel and iron production. Um, and so you see all this beautiful architecture, this lovely Victorian kind of architecture and lots of statues. And they've got a huge revamped market square that was uh, paid for with, it's a 12th century marketplace, but it was paid for with EU money. Um, but a huge leave area, one of those sort of famous Labour leave heartlands. So they voted 71% to leave. They're not, I thought I was going into kind of a Labour leave constituency, but actually over the years they've swayed a little bit. They're kind of one of the the famously undecided, really marginal constituencies. So in the last election in 2017, the Labour candidate held onto his vote there by, uh, or held onto his seat by 22 votes. Hmm. So extremely tight. And it's one of those places where you kind of feel if Boris Johnson can't win here, where can he win? Because they they do say that the Tories are going to win, they have to win in the West Midlands. Yeah, Would you describe it as a working class constituency? It is very much a working class constituency, yeah, very traditional. Um, a lot of sort of union people, um, people with you know, g- there's a there's a big marketplace, like I said, in the middle. A lot of the market stalls now are closed. It's sort of sad. It feels a little bit uh, let down, and it's also the location of the very first pound shop in the United Kingdom. Right, well, Interesting, so bit, set up a, by a, a local a market trader. Woe begone. You you talk to a, a a number of young people and students in the area, and um, we just want to have a listen to what they had to say. I'm feeling very anxious because um, obviously we've been going through a lot of changes throughout the past years and months as well and we don't know what's going to stick or what else is going to come around. We just, I think we just need to um, get Brexit sorted, push that inside and also focus on other important issues. I'm feeling quite optimistic about the future actually because I'm seeing a lot of traditional industries like um, there's a company in Wales who's making jeans in the UK again. I mean, I just think that's amazing, that the fact that we've got jeans made in Wales again. I just think it's brilliant. And seeing, you know, the wages of working-class builders going up, and I just think, no matter what, I can see jobs coming back to England and, and Britain as a whole, and I just see that as a good thing, and that's just going to carry on more and more. I feel like we're heading towards turmoil. With Brexit going on, with the lack of... Um, jobs in the country, I'm talking about like the, the traditional working class jobs, um, with growing wealth inequality and with the threat of climate change, I feel like we're just going to be torn apart. For a while it is going to be quite bad and after this whole Brexit ordeal, but I feel like there's only one way and that's up. And like <laughs> We're such an old country that we've always bounced back from everything that's happened. It's 
it should hopefully turn out well. I'd be quite optimistic if Jeremy got in, but I think if the Conservatives or anybody else got in, apart from, you know, aside from the Brexit issue, I don't know what they'd do with this country. I don't know which direction they're going, so I'd be quite anxious. So there's a span of views across the whole spectrum there, I think. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there was nine students in that class and they're politics students. I was struck by how really well informed they are and not at all apathetic. I mean, I suppose they study politics, so Mm. you'd imagine that they're probably more engaged than the average. Um, But but that was kind of a question I asked them at the very end. How do you feel about the future? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel neutral? Do you feel pessimistic? And actually, the selection of answers there is probably a little bit deceptive in that overwhelmingly they felt very negative about the future, uh, very distressed. The word anxious and anxiety came up a lot and the most optimistic one there the student who you heard talking about the genes being made again in Wales he's actually uh, the young Tory in the class and is a huge fan of Boris Johnson so I suppose maybe not entirely surprisingly that he's feeling very optimistic about the future Um, a lot of the other students in the class who would be kind of middle of the road there was two green voters there were two who were intending to vote Labour um, and four who were intending to vote Conservative which is probably a fairly accurate reflection of of what I found on the ground Out of how many in total? There were nine in total Although, you know, we do know there's a generational divide and we do know that young voters are more likely to vote for Labour. And we also know that um, people with university education are more likely to vote for Labour. Yeah, I was surprised that there weren't more Labour voters. It was actually really, really difficult in the West Midlands to find anybody who liked Jeremy Corbyn, anybody who was going to vote Labour. What I found an awful lot of was, particularly among older people, was people who were saying, I've been a Labour voter all my life. I've always voted Labour. You know, I've been a member of trade unions and everything, but I cannot vote for Corbyn. It's the Corbyn effect seems to have turned people off in massive numbers. I've always been a Labour man. I've always been a union man. But I can't stand Corbyn. I just think he's got no... Well, he's only interested in his own agenda and nothing else. Not interested in the people. No matter what he says, I'm going to vote Conservative. I just won't vote for Corbyn. And it's it's really... There's only either him or Johnson. I can't see anybody else getting there. Yeah. And I don't agree with the Lib, with the Lib Dems about cancelling Brexit. I don't agree with them at all. Yeah, and starting again. And starting all over again, because they don't want Brexit... They, all you get off them is the fact that, uh, that, we, that we'll lose jobs, we'll lose this, we'll lose... But how do we know? Because it's never happened before. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, Patrick, because you were out with a bunch of people who do like Jeremy Corbyn. Who, they like him very, very much. And it's kind of interesting because this time I was with kind of true believers. Um, I, I went to a Momentum organised kind of group canvas up in Aberconway in North Wales. Just remind our listeners who Momentum are. Momentum are basically they were... The, uh, an amalgamation of different Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn campaign groups during the leadership election. And now they're a, kind of a bit of a mass movement within Labour. It's 45,000 people, which is a huge number. And the really interesting thing, so Aberconway, like Wales voted leave. Um, Aberconway was traditionally Tory, but the seat shrunk to a fight. There was a 500 vote gap in the last election. So it's very, very close. Um, the young candidate for Labour is Emily Owen. Um, she's she's local. The guy they've now parachuted into the seat, parachuted in, is from, like, people are really appalled at this. He's, he's not from, he doesn't live in Wales at all. Um, so it was kind of interesting following them around because uh, there is this huge boost of people who deeply, deeply believe in Corbyn's policies because they're actually different from Tory policies. And that's what everyone kept saying to me. Absolutely everyone I spoke to joined the Labour Party since 2015. Because we know the Labour Party membership expanded enormously. There was new rules by Ed Miliband, so it expanded in support of Corbyn. Um, So there's this kind of weird thing where there's people who deeply, deeply believe in something 
and they're largely hitting apathy on the doors. Um, so the kind of the general thing on the door was apathy uh, combined with a little bit of anger over Brexit. They always said Brexit always came up, but it wasn't the first thing that came up. Um, and that was my experience when I went up to the, door, the doors with people. Everyone was deeply concerned about things like the NHS, very local issues like bins. Um, what Labour Party seem to be banking on is that Brexit isn't the only issue. And that's really what their tactic generally is, including Corbyn's decision to be neutral about Brexit. Uh, what the Tory party seem to be banking on is that Brexit is the deciding issue. So for the Tories, it's all Brexit. For these young people who are canvassing, um, not all young people, but all these new Labour supporters, it was about the other issues. It was about NHS. Oh, and everyone I spoke to except for one 12-year-old was a, a Remain supporter. I think there's a bit of wishful thinking there on the part of um, of the Labour canvassers that you spoke to, though, yeah. because I heard that as well. I bumped into the Labour MP or the, the, yeah. the sorry, the would-be Labour MP. I'm promoting him, Carl Greatbatch, when I was in a place called Newcastle under Lyme. Um, and he told me that as well, that, you know, it's very much the second issue. But it was literally the first thing. Absolutely everybody I stopped on yeah. the street. And, with it, the is, and it is the truth, isn't it, that the Labour strategy, you know, they, they believe the only way they can win this election or get a good result is to have Brexit not be the main issue, that they can win as they almost did in 2017 or certainly overperformed expectations yeah. was because the, the the election ended up not being about Brexit. And they're hopeful, They are ho- what they're banking on as well is that the polls are a bit wrong like they were the last time. Um, they 3.2 million new voters registered since the election was called. Two thirds of them are supposedly under 34. I'm not sure how that would affect the numbers, but they're kind of just really hopeful that there's a hidden Labour vote. Let's have a listen to Emily Owen, the Labour, Labour candidate. It's a strange seat, this, because in yeah. the general election, it's a run between myself and the Tories, yeah. in Labour and the Tories, really, really close. But in the Assembly election, Plaid comes second. Okay. So it's a really, so, so I've, I've been getting quite a lot of support, um, like yourself, that are going to lend me their vote to keep mm-hmm. Boris out. So that's interesting to me because there is a voting pact between in uh, in Wales, for example, between Plaid Cymru, uh, the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats, which yeah. is a, a pro-Remain uh, pact of which Labour, which Labour doesn't take part in. But the candidate the door, there so we were is talking saying... To, we were talking to a guy in the door who, is a, who has never voted Labour. He's always voted Plaid Cymru, but he was going to vote Labour this time because of how much he dislikes Boris. Right? So like what they, they would all, I kind of spoke to everyone after they came back um, about how they'd experienced the doors and the, the anti-Corbyn thing comes up a lot. And then their tactic is to point to Emily and, and, and Emily is well liked in the community and go, no, you're not voting for Boris. They have this line about how... Um, if you support a football team, you don't stop supporting them if you don't like the manager, you know. <laughs> so they're kind of trotting things like that. out. They're, they're kind of aware all of these people like Corbyn very much. And I, I get why that is. And I, I think what's happened in Britain, the reason Brexit is happening is I think there's been 30 years of technocracy where people have been in power saying that they're there to manage the economy and they're not talking about values. And suddenly, whatever you think of them, Corbyn and Boris Johnson are talking about other things. They're talking about identity-related issues and values. Although that doesn't necessarily end up with... These are 
the two most unpopular candidates for the position of prime minister since polling began, uh, which reminds me a little bit of the of the of the U.S. presidential election in 2016 when you had the two most unpopular presidential candidates. So that ain't necessarily a good thing from the point of view yeah, of the voters, is it? It's it's a really interesting phenomenon to be there on the streets. And and you know what I was struck by because I travel like Patrick. Twi- this is my third trip this year. I was mm. there in January and I was there again in April. And what I found on this trip was just that the public mood is now so low. People are really frustrated. They're not apathetic, but they're 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 distressed and they're you know they're really disgruntled with the choice that they've been faced with. Um, and it, it may have been a product of the two constituencies that I was in because the first one, Dudley North, the, the incumbent uh, Labour MP is a guy called Ian Austin. He's not running again. And he's gone so far as to ask his supporters to lend their votes to Boris Johnson because he says Corbyn is simply not fit to be Prime Minister. Um, and people in that constituency absolutely detest Corbyn. So I came upon people again and again who would say, you know, I, I met a group, I went to a knitter and natters group um, in a place called Sedgley. So I spoke to you know a lot of little old ladies with their with their knitting and a, a couple of um, older male voters as well and they sort of they said I said what are the issues that you care about in this election and they said my free TV license my pension all you know Tory policies that they really disliked and what, but when I asked them who they were voting for well I, well, I couldn't vote Coven so they're immediately saying that they're going to vote Boris Johnson even though they blame the Tories for taking away their free TV licences Can I ask how you would have voted in the past? Would you be one side or the other or does it depend you change from election to election? Yeah. yeah I'm meeting so many people in this area that used to be Labour and now um, It's it's um, Corbyn and Keane People don't like him doesn't come out over his um, ray up, does it? Yeah. No. Yeah, so you're not, not a big fan of Jeremy Corbyn? No. I'm impressed by the way you can keep knitting. My, my granny used to be able to do that as well. When I knit, I have to go like this. <laughs> Stare at what I'm doing. My granny used to be able to... You it. Yeah. So what's going on there? We know that party policies and political campaigns are often framed through the the persona of the political leader, but it's also about the policies, particularly in relation to Brexit, uh, as he says. But it's a real visceral dislike of Jeremy Corbyn. What is that? That's exactly the word that I would use. And it's funny, it seems to be kind of a, it's a, it's a two pronged thing. I think part of it is his neutral stance on Brexit, which is seen as weakness, uh, rightly or wrongly. I actually think he's taken a really nuanced position on on Brexit. But over there that, you know, in in that particular area, it's seen as weakness. And the other thing is that um, Dudley North is very close to Birmingham and there's still quite a lot of raw feeling there about um, the IRA and about Corbyn's refusal to condemn the IRA and I think Boris Johnson has really cleverly landed a few blows on Corbyn in that regard you know he's sort of he's been tweeting even in the last few hours I think um, about Corbyn's sort of alleged links to terrorism and his his refusal to condemn the IRA so that seems to have struck a chord with a lot of people and and people would bring that up with me on the street and they'd say well you know his terrorist links and his links to the IRA when I probed a little bit deeper they didn't really seem to know exactly what it was he was supposed to have done, Mm. just that in their minds he is associated with the bombing, the Birmingham pub bombings. I mean, you have two contenders for the leadership who are both essentially from London. They're both metropolitan London people in, in their in their slightly different ways, the old Etonian on one side and the the lifelong Labour allotment-tending activist uh, on the other. So maybe there is a sort of geographical prejudice here as well about you know, them coming down and tell us what to do. I think it's with Corbyn, I really think it's just that he's been absent and he's been absent for a very structural reason. I mean, it's partly a choice and it partly looks like he's kind of shadowy and any time that people make allegations about him, he's not out there front and centre like leaders usually are. And he's not out there front and centre like leaders usually are because the issue in British politics for the last three years has been Brexit and his position has been vague. So other Labour 
people and Liberal Democrats and rebel Tories have been arguing the opposite case and they look like the opposition. And consequently, when people when Boris kind of implies things about Corbyn, people don't have this kind of vision of Corbyn in their heads that they can counter it with. Um, Does that when, mean he looks weak? You see, he looks strong with things like the manifesto and, and he, because everything in that manifesto, actually, if you polled people, are things that British people want, right? It's just they don't believe Labour can provide it and they don't believe Labour can provide it because of, you know, 30 years of propaganda against left-wing policies and because um, Brexit has kind of made Corbyn lose credibility um, with the people who might otherwise support him on either side. So I think that... The reason Labour want to make this about other things is whenever Corbyn is out there front and centre talking about those manifesto issues, he does look strong. He just looks incredibly weak when he talks about But Brexit. he also looked incredibly weak, Jennifer, in the terms of his response to Andrew Neil on the anti-Semitism issue, which has dogged his leadership ever, ever since he became leader of the Labour Party. And it's a very important uh, and difficult issue in its own right for for the party, but it also speaks to a lack of kind of ability to control or a suspicion about their ability to to run anything. If they can't run the Labour Party uh, properly and keep anti-Semitism at bay, how can they run the country? Yeah, exactly. I was out on the streets the morning after that, actually, and and everybody was talking about it. And then I I bumped into the, the Labour candidate. And tell me, did you watch the debate last night? Uh, no, I was out campaigning. Yeah, so I haven't you seen haven't, any of you them yet. Seen any, have you, you've seen the reaction this morning, not overly, them. overwhelmingly favourable. No, no, it's yeah. not. And um, but I think that's the election all over. Mm. People, again, are so polarised yeah. that these discussions become very, very difficult to have. Yeah. Um, and sometimes an honest answer isn't what people want to hear. So, unfortunately, no, I've not seen any of these. I've, I've been out knocking on doors. Are people talking about it this morning? Uh, not so far. Yeah. Um, I, we'll see how it... You're never sure how much it goes on. The reality is, if you're interested in politics... Uh, and you're involved in politics, you can easily overstate the impact these things yeah. have. Um, he had he missed so many opportunities in that interview just to put that to bed for once and for all with an outright condemnation. And he seems to be sort of taking, it's almost like an Obama-esque type position, a kind of an, a position of intellectual superiority. And I'm not going to be bullied into saying these things just because it's the thing that people want me to say. And, and it's just not going down well with people there. Um, they didn't like Boris Johnson either. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, a lot of the people that I spoke to, even people who've always voted Tory, really don't like Boris Johnson either. But they kind of see him, they, they don't trust either of them, but they see Johnson as a bit more of a lovable chancer and a bit more, uh, Corbyn is a bit more kind of aloof and hard to pin down and a bit nebulous and a, and a bit weak. And I suppose, you know, faced with that choice, they're going to go with the sort of the, the cheeky, maybe not entirely trustworthy, but probably quite strong character that they believe Johnson to be over the sort of wishy-washy, nebulous, slightly more intellectual one that they perceive. I wonder, we will be. see. There is some sign of some shifting in the polls um, this week, I think particularly in London, so it may not be as relevant in some in somewhere like Dudley. Essentially, further squeezing of the Liberal Democrats in, in London, which means that the, the Labour vote is going up, which is more or less what happened in in 2017 as well, but it's a long way to go for them to achieve the objectives which your your friends in Wales are looking for. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it is, like, I mean, I think the other thing that's happened in British politics is that you have a return of ideology and that return of ideology is disliked by a lot of people in the centre. Um, it's it's and it's it's a it is a result of a, a long vagueness that's ignored the scent that's ignored what people have been going through in their lives, and consequently now you have a situation where there's lots and lots of people who believe very very deeply, but there are more people who are vague and angry. And my impression from my trips over to to Britain is people aren't even sure exactly what they're angry with. Like you start 
drilling into what they're talking about and they start contradicting themselves, there's a feeling of just generally being left behind by politicians and every politician is suffering for that now. The the Guardian columnist Simon Jenkins had an interesting column last week and he was talking about subjects which we've talked a fair bit about on this podcast over the last couple of years. And it's really about the the point that uh, he asked the question, um, why does Labour win so few elections in the in the United Kingdom, given that, in theory, at least, it's on behalf of the working man and the working man uh, and woman make up the majority of the population. So why does a party which is portrayed as the party of the upper and upper middle classes continually win? And he talks about the fact that, um, despite all this talk about the NHS, the evidence in terms of elections, one, is that people vote for other reasons as well. And they vote for other reasons that I, I found anyway. They're kind of hard pushed to define when you when you when you kind of probe a little bit deeper. Um, and there are a lot of contradictions in their positions. Like they will say, you know, the Tories won't look after the elderly, and they've taken away my pension entitlements, and they've taken away my free TV license, uh, and I'm really angry. But I'm angrier with Labour because, la- you know, Labour aren't going. We voted. We had a democratic vote on Brexit. So it's, it's Simon Jenkins. I think refers to this new emerging demographic called the left behinds, and I think those are the people that I was spending time with. People that that feel that they been left behind by the system and for them they're going to vote based I think on things like pride and indignation um, and a sense of frustration that they haven't been listened to that they voted to leave the the EU and we're three years on and now you know they have Labour telling them that they didn't really know what they were voting for and and perhaps we should ask you the question again Um, and everybody seems to think that that will mean another three years of negotiation. Very few people talked about actually what's going to happen after the, the UK leaves the EU. There will be another probably longer than three-year period of negotiation after that. But nobody seems to be thinking about that. One of the remarkable things about this election is that, in theory, that should be the subject of the election, is what happens now. But but there's nothing. It's all about get Brexit done. It's just like give birth to this monstrous child that we have conceived and get it over with and no thought to what's going to happen afterwards. It's like the singularity or kind of utopia or judgment day. Like everything stops when when Brexit happens. That seems to be how it's being discussed. Um, I think what's happened in British politics, I mean, this is political analysis has political analysts have talked about this for years, there used to be a very clear-cut relationship between the classes and the parties up until about the 60s or 70s, it started to diverge and under Thatcher it completely diverged. So it's really, really unclear now to people that the parties have class bias. Jenkins points out that uh, the majority of the working class polls show now vote Tory. Yeah, but that would have started during Thatcher, right? And then you have this deindustrialization of Britain that happens and you've got the this Thatcherite push of the idea of the self-made man and all of these people kind of it became and then under Labour new Labour you had a situation where the differences between the parties economically weren't as clear anymore so what I think what's happening now is there's a return to ideology but people don't really understand what ideology is anymore because they've had 30 years of kind of vague muddling around the But middle. when you say people don't understand, I mean, the, 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 the other element that's happening in this, and this is exactly mirrored in the United States, we see it as well, and probably in other countries too, is that there's a move from uh, those who are described as university educated and people who yeah. live in big cities towards the parties of the centre-left, in this case, Labour. So more of those people vote for Labour now, but fewer of the traditional working-class base, which you referred to, uh, do vote for Labour now. So who doesn't understand? And isn't there a well, danger in saying that people don't understand that the old classic socialist analysis of false false consciousness, the working-class haven't, haven't been educated into, well, into, their, into their interests? It's not false consciousness. New Labour abandoned... The, the working class and, and they did focus on social liberalism and that became the differentiating factor and that's the thing that's appealing to university graduates. What's happened now is you've got um, 
Jeremy Corbyn going back to an old Labour stance and people don't trust it because it's because that hasn't been, that stance hasn't been there for so long. It's now being equated with communism and radicalism. And I think there's a that cynicism one. as well about, you know, I heard a lot of people saying, sure, Labour just giving it out willy nilly. And, you know, we're, we're never going to see this money that they're promising to give us. There's a, there's a huge cynicism that anything will really be done or that anyone's interested in improving their lives. Uh, let's just have a listen to because it's interesting about both of you are saying there, let's have a listen to um, Emily Owen again and also Owen Jones, who as well as being a well-known Guardian columnist is a, is a pro-Corbyn activist. I do not care if you have managed to lift 10,000 people out of poverty yesterday unless those 10,000 people have felt that they have been lifted out of poverty. That's what I care about. Let's talk about the differences of what you can make to individual people's lives. And that's why I am so excited about our manifesto. And they are policies for real people. We need to take back control from the elite. We need to take back control from the exploitative corporations. We need to take back control from the billionaires and most importantly from Boris. I can't encourage that. <laughs> Are we going to get Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 and have a socialist government to change this country forever? Obviously, that's a bit of good old rabble rousing, yeah. you know, as they, as, they, as they go out to campaign. But they're not going to get Jeremy Corbyn into a socialist government, are they? Because the best he can hope for is, uh, is preventing Boris Johnson getting a majority. Yeah, of course. But every party... Uh, every party canvasses as though they're going to win, right? And then this is the problem we've had in this country. Why does any party in this country even bother having a manifesto given that it's uh, wall-to-wall coalition governments? Mm. Um, I I think there's a kind of real... I got a real sense of sadness. <laughs> like, when you see all these uh, very, very... Enth- a lot of them are very young people, very enthusiastic and believing in, in these promises. And they are meeting uh, a nation that's just kind of kind of shell-shocked and woozy and and tired of, of politics. And so, I mean, I think that's the biggest problem in, in Britain is that so many people are tired and exhausted about politics. They don't even want to think about it anymore, um, which I think is what, like every time I've gone over, that's what I find. Like people take a deep sigh, they talk about what they believe, they start even undercutting what they want to believe and then what they believe in the next sentence. Nobody has hopes or or a belief in an ideal future. Yeah. They just have a sense of uh, one person being worse than the other. And that's if they're voting. That's what they're they're voting for. It's, you know, this guy is marginally less bad. Like, I, what's interesting amongst the true believers is that there's a, co- like, definitely in the Labour Party, there's this growing group. They're not electorally significant, arguably, yet, but there's this growing group of people who really believe in a form of politics again and they don't just believe in it as a form of, of tactical game playing they believe in it as a set of ideals that will make the country better the, the sort of former Labour voters in Dudley who you were talking to do you think that message could be attractive to them if not in this election in future elections perhaps when Brexit is taken off the table as being the as being the main thing and perhaps if they had a leader who kind of appealed to them on a personal level more than Jeremy Corbyn seems to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that, that it's kind of, it's ripe for some type of a populist figurehead that that appeals to people. Was that me? 
I think, I th- yeah. So I think, you know, when I was listening to that clip there, I just thought I that what I didn't encounter any of that kind of ideology or idealism or anything like that. All I came upon was people kind of rolling their eyes and some people visibly shuddering when I asked them if they had any thoughts yeah. in the election and they wanted to talk about it. And in the end, I had to kind of come up with a very indirect way to get them to talk to me. So I would approach people and I'd go, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell me about what some of the issues that people in this area care about are and then kind of work around to the election, kind of come in the back door with them. Um, you know, I've always thought that it, like populism really flourishes where there's a, a huge gap between the urban and, and the rural or the sort of the, the labour leave heartland places that I would have been in the United Kingdom. There's, they're a different planet to kind of the, the London boroughs where there'd be huge support for, for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I think that, I think people are, are, are definitely open to being sold a better story about their lives. You know, I think at the moment they're very concerned about, I heard a lot about, you know, what, what do people in Ireland think of, of the United Kingdom? And we're very sorry. There was a lot more awareness about the implications for Ireland of Brexit, really? both to the border and trade, actually. They would bring it up with me. I didn't have to bring it up with them. Um, you know, when I was there in, in January, I found myself having to tell people that Ireland is no longer part of the United Kingdom over and over again. I didn't have to do that once on this last trip. I found out to explain, when I was there last time, I found out to explain borders to people. They didn't seem to understand. Like, I'd explain what the Irish border was and I explained that this was the border they wanted to reclaim. You know, they wanted to reclaim these borders with Europe. And they didn't, like, even in Dover, people were, most of the people I met were avid Leave voters who just did not believe a single thing that Project Fear had told them about what happened to their port. Patrick, we had a minor technical glitch there because while Jennifer was answering my question, Siri on my phone tried to answer my question <laughs> yeah. about whether the Labour Party had a future post-Brexit without, uh, what did without Jeremy say? Corbyn. Um, not very much. <laughs> Directed me to a couple of Google yeah, answers. exactly like people in the street. <laughs> but what do, what do you think? I mean, do you, do, you, do you think, and actually I'd like to ask both of you, maybe as, as we kind of move towards conclusion here, because you've been doing all this in-depth reportage, maybe to you first, Patrick, I kind of sense that Britain has to have a Brexit of some sort at this point because the, otherwise the, the atmosphere would continue to be as poisonous, if not yeah, worse. But it needs, but it does need something after the Brexit. So I think that I met a lot of people who couldn't countenance the idea it, over my time in Britain that wouldn't countenance the idea that Brexit wouldn't happen. At the same time, you've got this huge country with huge poverty block spots, with huge numbers of people being left behind. So they need something more than that. And I think they rightly feel, and they're, they're veering towards extreme things like Brexit and arguably extreme things. Like I actually don't think his manifesto is that extreme, but like Jeremy Corbyn, because there is... They haven't been promised anything for a long time. All they've been promised is like people tend to promise kind of vague futures where the economy rises slightly. And now you are getting politicians. I mean, on the one hand, Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto is old school, radical socialism. And then on the the far extreme, you've got Boris Johnson presenting Brexit like it is. But apart from Brexit, that's not peculiar to the United Kingdom. You could see exactly the same thing in the deindustrialized parts of northern France, for example. Um, Different political systems, too. I mean, the British system is a first-past-the-post system that tends to veer to extremes. In a way, I I, I think Ireland is a different, very different country to Britain because of our political system which just seems to be a buffer against both idealism and populism. Um, I, I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't, I would, I would think that Britain will look very different from the way it does now, one way or another in 10 years time. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, 
Britain at the moment kind of reminds me of me during my first pregnancy when I never really thought beyond what was going to happen in labour and I didn't actually realise that there was an infant coming home with me that was going to be there for the next 18 years and I, I think you know I, I get a little sense of that I think um, Brexit is inevitable and if I thought that you know I probably did think that before I went over last week but I came home definitely thinking it has to happen for Britain to be able to move on um, and it's not just kind of an, uh, an ideological inevitability it's actually having a, a, an impact already on people's lives over there so some of the traders that I would have spent time with in, in Dudley North in my first couple of days there um, are small shop owners and they would do a lot of selling on eBay um, one of them was a guy in a vintage camera shop another one was a guy in a toy shop and a woman in a children's clothing shop um, and, and they would have always had a lot of custom from Europe and they said that's just dried up as though people are just not spending money anymore because they're not sure they're not sure what's going to happen they're not sure when Brexit's going to happen so all of their customers in Europe have just vanished so they said you know Brexit's already had an impact on their ability to, to do trade and to run their businesses so you know they need clarity um, and they need to know what the next phase they need to start talking about what's going to happen in, in the next phase um, and I met lots of people there who voted Remain last time who would have liked to remain in, in the EU but they've given that up now nobody really believes in another referendum I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen um, and I really didn't come across anybody who thought that was a good idea even people who originally would have voted R Remain and would vote Remain again if there was a second referendum but the problem is that that huge constituency of Leave voters they're not going to just evaporate into the ether um, so you know like it or not, I think Brexit has to happen now. And the sooner it happens, probably the better. Patrick, I think it's pretty clear that you're no fan of Boris Johnson. Can you see any prospect that he can be stopped becoming prime minister with a majority next week? Um, I think he's probably going to be prime minister next week. Like I, I think that, that it mightn't be as close as I think it is. I think somehow the polls are not picking up some of the youth vote. So I think it might be closer than people think. But um, I don't I don't I don't have much hope for for Jeremy Jen? yeah I think that's a major dose of wishful thinking on Patrick's on Patrick's behalf that I think that I don't think that there's a hidden Labour youth vote I don't think that there's I couldn't find any Labour vote I mean I really had to struggle to find anybody that was going to vote Labour even in these Labour areas where there have been Labour seats admittedly with diminishing majorities over the last of the, the last five or six elections um, but I only found people who were going to vote Conservative pretty much I think I found about three Labour voters in a week well we will know the answer to that on Friday the 13th which is an evocative date for, for such a result Patrick and Jen, thanks very much for coming in today. And thanks to our producers, Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or your preferred podcast provider. You can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thank you very much indeed for listening.